This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, the podcast that has two reasons for believing that one isn't the loneliest number. I'm Scott Phillips and with me is, well, nobody. I'm doing this one solo. So if you're tuning in just to listen to Doc, you want to give this one a miss because he's not going to be here today. He's on holidays. He's uh, probably somewhere around Delhi, I think, right now in India. He's having a, having a well-earned break, or at least he's having a break. We'll debate whether it's well-earned when he gets back. I can say that because he's not here. I'm going to just opine a little bit. I am going to cover Apple. So for those of you who know, I'm going to have a complete free reign on Apple with that Doc interjecting, telling me how wonderful it is. I might mention Google or Android or Pixel. And the great thing is, even even as I'm saying this, I can imagine Doc in the background somewhere, his ears are burning, he's going to listen to this back later and go, I can't believe I went on holidays. Now Scott had complete free reign and I'm taking full, full advantage of it. So thank you for listening. Thank you for joining us for this new year, the first new recording of the new year. Of course, we pre-recorded a couple for you, so you weren't left high and dry over the holiday season. And we do wish you the best of 2019 and hope you had a really, really good Christmas. Now, Phil, I'm going to talk about a couple of things, and I'm going to get into some mailbag. So one of my favorite things about doing the podcast is hearing from you and giving us a chance to answer your questions, share your comments, uh, feedback, all that kind of good stuff. It's uh, it's part of the, the best part of what we do, because at the end of the day, if I just wanted to be a kind of a desk jockey and, and just invest and only do that, there's plenty of jobs I can do, um, but and Doc as well. But for us, it's kind of you know the, the interaction with members, the serving the member part, the the spreading the love of investing is really kind of what we're here for as Twee and as um, maybe you know that doesn't always uh, maybe sounds a bit a bit cute, a bit a bit Twee, but um, that's kind of what we're here for and why we do it. So I wanted to wanted to start with that. Now, Kai talked about. The new year, and it's been something of a topsy-turvy ride since last time we were here in the studio live. Now, as you don't need me to tell you, the last three months of last year wiped out not only the entire gains of the year to date before that, but left us in the red for the year, down about five and a half percent, down about four if you include dividends, maybe a little bit less. Uh, so, look, you know, not a great year, the worst year in seven apparently. And I've got to say, I want to talk a little bit about volatility because. Frankly, if a negative 4% year is the worst year in seven, then how good has the last seven years been? I mean, it's easy to sort of look and say, well, it was a tough year, it was a bad year. Yes, it was all of those things. But geez, if our worst year in the last seven, since 2011, if the worst year has been a minus four, then maybe the point isn't that things were bad last year. Maybe the point is the last seven years in total have been pretty good. And I think that's pretty true. We talk a lot about volatility. I, I call it the ticket to the dance. You have to accept volatility in investing. We've seen it all over the place. And really, this is the story of a market that is doing what markets do. In fact, it's unusual that we go seven years with only a one negative 4% year. The market, as a general rule, is down about one year in three. So really, we should have had two, maybe even three bad years in the last seven. If 4% is the worst, well, we're doing pretty well. And I think sometimes that perspective is worth keeping an eye on. Now, as I speak on Friday, the 11th of January, you think about what's been going on in the first 11 days or probably you know six or seven market days of the year, and it turns out we've made back all of the losses in December and then some. So for all of the grief, think about December. Think about how you felt as we went into the December, December 2, December 5, December 12, December 23. The market was down. It felt pretty ordinary. Where's the Santa rally? It's not coming. All that stuff. The market's down. Worst month since X. All those headlines. And yet, Seven, eight, ten days into the new year, we've made all of it back. In fact, all of the grief from December wiped away. Think about how you felt. Think about the column inches, the headlines, the talking heads, yes, like me, who talked about why the market was down, what's going on, how bad things were. 
we've wiped all of that out and then so we've made back some of November's falls. And so, you know, this is this is exactly the story of volatility. We always think humans have a recency bias, right? We look back and say, well, the most recent day, then the week, then month, then year, they're the things that I remember. They're the things that I put most weight in as, as, as a person. And it's just evolution, right? It's what we do. We learn, you know, our brains can only process so much. And on the savannah, uh, if you saw a line yesterday, chances are you're going to remember that today. Uh, you're going to remember your most recent experiences because they're the things that are most relevant to your immediate future. Now, that's if you're on the savannah, if you're hunting for food, if you're trying to grow crops, that's really, really, really important. The longer-term story, though, isn't something that comes easily to mind, and that's exactly why, frankly, investors have an opportunity because many investors don't get that. On the flip side, it's also what scares the heck out of us. And so this is one of those stories that really needs to be told over a very, very long time frame. You've heard me say that a lot. Uh, I spoke to one investor only last or this week, actually, uh, who said, you know, he'd, he'd, he'd taken a long-term approach and finally had it drummed into his head because he listened to me talk. Um, I think that was partly uh, him just blowing smoke and partly the fact that I've just done it so frequently that, frankly, he didn't have a choice. And that's pretty good by me. I like that kind of outcome. So if you're an investor who's sitting here saying, well, I hear what you're saying. I'm not so sure. Then take it from that guy. <laughs> These things happen. If you already have heard this a million times, you go, yes, yes, Scott, we know that, we know that, then great. And I apologize for banging on about it again, but in our mission to make sure the whole world, and particularly Australians, invest better uh, at The Motley Fool, this is part of what we do, part of how we do it. And you know what? Even some of the investors at The Fool, including myself, we still get nervous, we still get a bit uncomfortable with volatility. I don't mean to say that it's never a problem, we never worry about it, we never feel the pain. Of course we do. But it's knowing how to deal with it, knowing these things will pass, and frankly, more importantly, knowing that the market goes up over time is far more important. Now, that brings me to another point very quickly, which is that if you think about what's going on in the market and you think about all the doom and gloomsters that are out there talking about how terrible things are, how we're headed for a recession, the market's going to crash, downturns, recession, depressions, God knows what, add add more to the list. It's kind of convincing, right? Like pessimism always sounds smart. And I get it. That makes a whole heap of sense. That's exactly what is supposed to happen. You're supposed to feel like, well, that's that might be true. Yeah, that risk is real. And again, think about think back to evolution. Oh, you know, maybe the lion won't attack me. Maybe I'll be okay this time. It could be fine. Or do you turn around and run up the nearest tree? Now, of course you do. And so what do we do? We hear something negative. We hear some risk and we say, oh, I better I better take that into account just in case, just in case. And that is going to cause us, cause us to, to, to try and evade all of those potential risks. Now, investing is about taking risk by definition. You have to have that mindset. And I've been asked a lot of times, how do you feel about 2019? Now, the first thing hopefully you know, if you're a regular listener, is that I don't do predictions. Predictions are made to make people like me look stupid because they never, ever come true. You can't predict the market. No one knows what's going to happen. And as I've said many, many times, if someone's making a prediction, they're either fooling themselves or they're fooling you or both. They are not... Really, yeah, I don't. I don't believe anyone really thinks those predictions are going to come true. And if they do, they're probably kidding themselves. And that should be a, a warning sign for you. But think about the long term, as I just mentioned. And here's my as we go to 2019. Here's my exhortation to to all of the foolish listeners who are who are listening right now. Maybe this year's a recession. Maybe it's not. Maybe next year's a recession. Maybe it's not. It's been a decade since the last one. So are we due for one? Probably, yeah. And in Australia, certainly it's been 25, 27 years. So are we due? Probably, yeah. But if you think about the fact the market goes up more often than it goes down, that it goes up further than it goes down, and that over time, the markets have just get, delivered record upon record upon record upon record, here's my takeaway. It's better to be optimistic and occasionally wrong rather than pessimistic and occasionally right. 
And I think if you keep that in mind, that will really steer you clear. Because yes, the pessimists we write sometimes, and if we have Dr. Doom, Nuri Orbini, who apparently picked the right last the last recession, the GFC, and so he's been quoted forever and ever and ever, and he's been slighted as being, you know, he's, he's right, he was right, he's a great predictor, all that kind of good stuff. Now, yeah, okay, fine. But if, think about 2009 when people were saying, oh, wait for the double dip recession. And then in 2011, people were predicting a Chinese hard landing. And then in 2012, house prices were going to crash. And then 2013 and 14. In 2016, investment bank RBS told their investors to sell everything. How do you reckon that's worked out three years later? I'll give you a tip, not particularly well. So think about that when it comes to the need or the desire or the the human instinct to be pessimistic rather than optimistic. Yes, sometimes the pessimists will be right, but you know what? When they're right, they will actually they won't be as right as it would have been had they just simply ignored it and invested the whole way along. As I've heard said, more money is lost trying to avoid the next recession than in the recession itself. In other words, the gains that you get between now and when it finally happens and then after that are far larger than any money you'll make or save by not being invested during the crash itself. So last word on this, be optimistic because you are far, far better financially, statistically speaking, being optimistic and occasionally wrong rather than pessimistic and occasionally right. Motley Fool Money. For more, go to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. Now, I promised you a couple of words on Apple. Doc, what do you think? Oh, that's right. He's not here. Excellent. I get free reign. I get to share my thoughts on Apple without fear or favor. I can say exactly what I want and only later will I have to hear Doc complaining about it. So here we go. I mentioned Apple because it reported, well, it downgraded earnings expectations during the week. And it was a pretty significant downgrade. It was basically going from a 10-ish percent growth to a decline in profits. And it's all coming apparently because of a lack of iPhone sales growth in China. In fact, a massive decline in China, which is dragging the rest of the business down with it. Now, if you've listened again for a little while, you would have remembered a few months back, Apple decided to stop reporting unit sales. And at the time we had that conversation about, is it a big deal? Does it matter? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Now, I'm not saying we should have or could have predicted or known that this was going to presage a, a fall in earnings, that maybe they're trying to get ahead of the news, although it's tempting to try and think that might have been part of it. Far more importantly, though, I guess, is the Apple story. And as much as I hate to do this when Doc's not here, I'm actually going to speak in defense of Apple at least a little bit. And not so much in defense of the company. I don't need to do that. It's already uh, massively large, $650 billion US dollars. So it can it can well and truly hold its own. But the shares are now selling for around 12 or 13 times earnings. Now, that is the price you'd pay for a business that effectively is never going to grow again or grow very, very, very slowly. I don't know about you, and I'm not an Apple fan, as you well know. I've got a Google Pixel. Did I say Google again? Google, Google, Google. What's that, Doc? Oh, still nothing. Uh, but but Apple, realistically, is a business that has massive, massive loyalty, a massive amount of followers. It sells truckloads of iPhones. And most importantly, people with iPhones then go and buy Apple Music or apps. Or they download from the iTunes store. Basically, the ecosystem, as they say, it's a horribly overused word. But Apple consumers, Apple customers are loyal, and they spend a lot of money with Apple. And if you think over time Apple's not going to find new ways of selling new phones, new devices, whether that's virtual reality or more watches or other devices, instruments, implements, uh, I think think that's a really gutsy call. I think given Apple's, I'm sitting here looking at a couple of Apple products literally as we record this, um, as, as, as we think about how Apple will go about selling more products over time, you'd almost got to bet against them. You've got to believe they can never, ever find another way to grow for today's price not to be reasonably attractive. Now, I don't own any Apple shares. I do own um, Amazon and Google. Um, it, but, you know, the, realistically, I think at 12 times earnings, very, very hard to not love it. 
other thing I want to say very quickly is there's so many Monday morning quarterbacks in the papers. So many death of Apple stories that came out the day after they did the downgrade, right? And you think, well, okay, it would have been fine if you'd done that a week before. Here's what I think will happen. After the news, when everybody comes out with, oh, I knew that was going to happen and here's why. As, you know, when everybody, almost everybody is saying Apple's dead, the contrarian in me just thinks, eh, maybe that's a good time to buy. I don't know that it is necessarily. I don't know that we should necessarily take the whole thing to heart. But I do think it's very, very cheap if it can grow even moderately in the future. Now, if it can't grow, if it declines and, and it you know becomes smaller over time, then today's price is probably expensive, quite frankly. But if you're betting that Apple's going to decline over time, I don't know. I reckon that's a pretty gutsy call. So I wouldn't I wouldn't say I'm bullish on Apple necessarily, mostly because I don't want Doc to be able to lord it over me when he comes back. Um, but let's just say I think the 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 Monday morning quarterbacking, the 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 epitaphs and eulogies that are being delivered. I reckon it's a little bit premature, and sometimes that's good a good sign that maybe, just maybe, there's some value to be had. Now, before I get onto the mailbag, one other piece of housekeeping news, and some good housekeeping news, I want to thank you who are listening to our podcast, because last week, the Motley Full Money podcast, produced in conjunction with Triple M, was the number one business podcast in the country, and that is very bloody exciting, quite frankly, a little bit humbling. Uh, we very much appreciate you listening as our, our, our one of our uh, cohorts in the US, uh, uh, one, of our, one of our colleagues, Chris Hill, likes to say, you have all the time in the world and you can choose whatever you want to do with your time, including listening to other podcasts or no podcasts at all. The fact you spend a little bit of your time on a weekly basis with us, um, we very much appreciate it. We, we don't take it for granted in the slightest. And to be number one business podcast in the country, that was kind of pretty cool. So a couple of charts on iTunes and and uh, an and Android chart, we were the number one. We're actually the number 14 podcast overall in the country too, regardless of category. So also, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for making the time. Thank you to those of us. We, we jest and I, and I say regularly, you know, please tell your friends and give us five stars and all that kind of stuff. We're serious. We think we're hopefully adding some value to people's lives. And so we hope you can and we'll share it. But we, we do it mostly as a joke. Uh, but we are very, very humbled that you've taken the time to give us some ratings, to share it with your friends, to listen, to spend some time with us. We hope to always, as always, uh, justify that time and effort with, with some really good content, some value add, hopefully occasionally a laugh or two, uh, even maybe when Doc's back. Maybe this isn't the best one, but we'll, we'll do our best. Uh, but uh, but really, just just thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for communicating with us as well. We're about to get on a mailbag. We really, really appreciate hearing from you. I'll give you a quick shout out. If you want to get in touch with us, email us at info at fool.com.au. Or you can hit us up on Twitter. Our corporate account is at the Motley Fool AU. Pretty straightforward. You can get me at, at TMF Scott P. That's the Motley Fool, obviously, at TMF Scott P or Anirban and at Anirban Mahanti. So if you want to get in contact, we really would appreciate it. Um, let us know what you're thinking. Ask us some questions. Give us some feedback. Bouquets and brickbats both, you know, I don't know about welcome, but certainly appreciate it. Uh, and if we can improve, we will. If we're doing something right, then let us know that too so we can do more of it and, and serve you the way we hope to do with this podcast every week. So again, thank you for making us number one, at least for a short period of time. Motley Fool Money. Financial advice for real people, not trust fund hippies. Sign up for the newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, time for the mailbag. Now, our first mailbag comes from Cassie. And Cassie starts exactly as she should, as, as, as regular listeners will know. Hi, guys. Absolutely love the podcast. There we go. That's how she gets on the, on the podcast. And how down to earth you both are. I don't know, is down to earth code for you're not very interesting or you're not very, uh, not very exciting or maybe just not very... Uh, not very, not very keen, not very smart. I'm not sure. Anyway, down to earth, we'll take that as a, as a positive. We'll take that as a, uh, as a compliment. Cassie says, I have a question. You very often will highly recommend Berkshire Hathaway stock, but they are listed at 292000 
$500 per share. As of the 7th of, of January, we appreciate the date. Am I definitely looking at the right stock? Because this is such an expensive stock. I don't have close to that much money to invest. And Cassie, that is a really, really good question. Firstly, thank you for the question. Thank you for listening. And I would say too, uh, thank you for our female listeners. Um, we male, you know, male, the, the finance industry is very male dominated. So many blokes in our industry, um, in in terms of people listening, people working in the industry. Most of our members tend to be male, so we love it when female members join, when female listeners listen. We really appreciate it. Not again that it should be anything different. But our experience is it tends to be. So if we've been relevant to you and you can have a listen and you enjoy it, then fantastic. We really appreciate you doing that. Now, Cassie, you ask about Berkshire Hathaway. It's a very, very good question. The answer is that the Berkshire Hathaway A-class shares are indeed worth $294,000. In fact, um, that's that's the, the, the compound value. And it, it, to some degree, that's the scorecard, right? If you think about Warren Buffett's success over more than half a century, the success of Berkshire Hathaway is exactly reflected in that share price. It's a share price that would have been... I want to say about 50 bucks back in the 1960s. And if you compound that at a really good rate, as Buffett has over a very, very long time, guess what? You get to, to that sort of price. In fact, as I record this, it's 295,159 bucks. Now, I don't know about you, but I haven't got a, a spare house to sell to buy a Berkshire Hathaway share, but luckily for us, we don't have to. So about 20 years ago, Berkshire Hathaway created a second class of shareholding. It split the shares into one fifteen thousandth, and don't worry about the math, just trust me, um, so that the, the basically people like you and I can afford to buy Berkshire Hathaway shares at a much cheaper price. Now, effectively, you get the complete same economic access. You get one fifteen thousandth of the of the the rights, if you like, of the, the share of the earnings that an A-class share. You do get less voting rights, but frankly, Buffett's got that sewn up, so don't worry too much about that. So instead of buying an A-class share, which is BRK-A, if or dot A, depending on your brokerage account, for two hundred ninety-five grand, you can buy a B-class share, which, as I as I speak now, is trading for one hundred ninety-six dollars and fifty-eight cents. So, Cassie, I hope that helps. Again, same company, same shares, same relative economic interest. Of course, it's lower because you're getting a, a fraction of a share, uh, but it's exactly the same thing with a little bit less voting rights. And I only say that just to be completely transparent, but. I own B-class shares. I don't own A-class shares, unfortunately. I'd love to own half a dozen of those. It has certainly solved my financial woes. Uh, but if you're if you're interested in Berkshire Hathaway, the B-class shares are the ones to own. They're much more liquid, and frankly, they're much cheaper per share to buy, and you can get interest in Berkshire Hathaway. Now, while I'm here very quickly, don't freak out about the price per share. We'll do this at another time. We've done it certainly in the past. The price per share, you know, whether it's $0.10, cents, $10 or $100, doesn't make... make, make just start again, doesn't make the company more or expensive or less expensive because it depends on how many slices you cut the old pizza into. As we like to use that analogy, our favorite investing analogy is the pizza. And if you think about a pizza and you cut one, you cut a $20 pizza into two slices, well, they're 10 bucks each. You cut a $20 pizza into 20 slices, they're a dollar each. Now, which one's cheaper? Well, it's cheaper to buy a $1 slice of pizza, but if you're only getting a tenth of the size, you've got to buy 10 slices to make the same amount of pizza as one $10 slice, right? So, it's very much about the proportion of the company you own, not the price per share in and of itself. So don't don't be too swayed by that. I know, Cassie, you're not, but just in terms of other people thinking about that and saying, well, 200 bucks a share, gee, something else is cheaper at, at 30 bucks. Well, it is on a per share basis, but you're getting a different type of investment, a different share of a particular company. So keep that in mind. Now, speaking of Berkshire, we've got a, a, a message from Rory, who's not quite as enamored as I am with Berkshire Hathaway. Uh, he says, um, Berkshire stock is, is quoting here from, from Google, Berkshire stock has underperformed the S&P 500 since 2008. It's undoubtedly a safe stock and has done it amazingly well over its history, but I'd like to understand why you'd recommend if starting today. 
That's a really, really good question. Effectively, Roy is saying, look, the last 10 years have been tough for Berkshire. Uh, they haven't, uh, Berkshire hasn't outperformed the ASX, isn't, oh, sorry, the S&P. Isn't this just a perennial loser? Why would you buy something that can't beat the market? Uh, I guess my, my thoughts are twofold. The first is that depending on your individual circumstances, and we can never give personal advice, there are very, very few, if any, safer investments than Berkshire Hathaway. It is an enormous conglomerate collection of massive amounts of different businesses, everything from uh, a book publisher through to through an energy company. It has uh, shares in airlines and Apple itself. Um, this is an amazingly diverse company, Coca-Cola, Amex, um, owns uh, owns an import trading company. This is a very, very diverse operation run by the world's best investor and also supported with a couple of two, uh, two very good investors, Todd and Ted, Ted Weschler and Todd Combs, uh, who are very good investors in their own right. You're getting a, an investment team effectively for nothing, um, plus the, the, the fundamental kind of underpinnings, that the structure, the size, the scope of that business, which is just a really, really impressive company. There are very few better sleep at night investments, to my mind, than Berkshire Hathaway, regardless of whether or not it beats the market. Now, Roy will say, okay, that's fine, but if you're not going to beat the market, why bother? And that's absolutely legitimate. So for some people, sleep at night is worth it. Secondly, what I would say is to some degree, it also depends on the benchmark you look at. The last 10 years have been good for the S&P, less good for Berkshire for two reasons. One that I think is supportive of the case of including Berkshire and one that frankly isn't. And so I want to share both of those with you. Firstly, you know, the, the market fell so dramatically during the GFC that to come roaring back kind of isn't a surprise. Now, to some degree, because Berkshire didn't fall anywhere near as much, we should expect it hasn't got quite as far to come back. So if, you were, if we were sitting here in 2008 saying, which one would you buy? That'd be a reasonable question. But looking over the past 10 years and thinking, what were the impacts on the market over that decade? You can say that you know, Berkshire's underperformed. By the same token, you kind of think, well, it should have, right? Because it didn't fall as much during the GFC. Its very strength was what stopped it falling further. And so it simply didn't have as far to come back. So just it's worth being mindful of the time frame and also the comparator. On the flip side and why this would agitate against Berkshire, or at least uh, its relative uh, role in your portfolio is the growth in the S&P and frankly, the whole US stock market has come outside Berkshire's core competence. It's come from the growth of Amazon and Google and Netflix and Facebook, a whole lot of tech names, even in Microsoft, a whole lot of companies that have absolutely come, you know, have just been the, the powerhouses of the US stock market and the powerhouses of the US economy. These companies are really reinventing the world, delivering really strong growth. And if one thing Berkshire isn't, it's a technology company. And so whatever these guys are in the ascendancy, wherever growth investing remains strong, and frankly, growth as a style has massively outperformed value. And so you would expect that over time that would agitate towards not seeing Berkshire outperform the market. In fact, those tech companies driving out performance, which is exactly what's happened. Now, if that continues for the next 10 years, it's entirely possible Berkshire keeps underperforming. And so in that environment, I could imagine someone saying, look, I don't want that. Thank you very much. For my money, and frankly, literally my money, Berkshire is my largest holding. Looking forward, do we know for sure that Google and Amazon and Facebook are going to be the drivers of the next 10 years of growth? Not really. Is growth going to remain in vogue and value out of out of vogue? I don't know. So to some degree, I think you, you want to have the Berkshire Hathaway's operating businesses, it's, it's massive cash generating power and the investors running that business at the helm. I feel very, very comfortable having Berkshire as a cornerstone position of my portfolio. So that's why I can understand absolutely people saying, no, not for me. And if that's you, then fantastic. Uh, by all means, go for it. Find something that makes more sense for you as an investor. Um, we don't want anyone to necessarily follow our advice just because we say you should. Make your own decisions and see how you go. All right. Another one from Chris. Now, Chris uh, has, has obviously been listening very closely. Listen to the list. Hi, Scott and Nibar. Love the podcast. Tick, he says. In fact, I've shared it with several of my friends. Tick, he says again. It may be a sad commentary on my life, but I've heard every episode since your commencement several years. Oh, sorry. 
Sorry, Chris, you've been wasting your time, mate, but thank you for the dedication. But I've learned a lot from listening and have joined several full services. Tick, tick. I give it five stars. He says, surely that ticks all the boxes. Chris, you are a man after our own heart. You know exactly how to get on this podcast and you've done well. Um, I've also, I also subscribed to several US full podcasts, which have increased my investor knowledge markedly, which other listeners may also be interested in, particularly David Gardner's Rule Breaker Investing and Motley Fool Money. So there is a US Motley Fool Money. We shamelessly stole their name. Uh, so if that's your thing, then give that a go. Uh, we love those. He says, both are interesting and entertaining. I'm now investing both locally and in the US due to your podcasts. Awesome. Well done, Chris. Very, very cool. He says, over recent weeks, there's been some discussion about margin loans, which is true. One thing you have not addressed, however, is the tax-deductible nature of the interest on those loans. Should this not also be factored into a discussion on pros and cons of this type of investment? Keep up the good work. It's an important service you provide, as the recent Royal Commission is showing us all. Chris, thank you for the email. I will resist the temptation of rant about the Royal Commission because nobody wants that. Uh, but I will cover your comment. Look, you are absolutely dead right in terms of the tax-deductible nature of interest on margin loans to the extent that the interest exceeds any dividend income you receive. So to, that, that's the first thing to note. You have to make a loss by definition. It's the, it's the, 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 uh, the negative gearing component, if you like, of, of marginal loans that is deductible. That's absolutely true. And that can be a meaningful benefit. I think what I, what I would say, though, is I'd go back to the original kind of, um, my original point around marginal loans, which is just to be very, very careful that you don't end up getting caught out by them. And I won't, I won't go through the whole thing. Hopefully, if you've been listening for a while, Chris certainly has, but other listeners, if you've been listening for a while, you know we don't love marginal loans because the risk is, what we call in the trade asymmetric. In other words, yeah, you might save a couple of percentage points on your tax, but if you end up with a margin call, you could lose 20, 30, 40, 50, even 80%. And, well, you can lose literally all of it, but you can lose a very large portion of your portfolio if things go the wrong way. So would you would you want to save 2% and then possibly risk losing 80%? For me, the answer is still no. Yes, that's an absolute pro of margin loan. So Chris is right to bring it up. Um, Matt, you're dead right. You know, if, if you want to do a margin loan or you're using a margin loan or you're considering it, in the pro column is definitely the tax deductibility. And as I've said, every one of us thinks we're better than average drivers, but by definition, we can't be. We all think also we'd be the sensible ones using a margin loan, uh, we, unless you've lived through it, unless you've done it. And frankly, even if you have, and you, you know, the next time could be different, uh, the chances that you expose yourself to having to go back to square one, that's just a brutal start again. If, if you've been saving for any length of time, investing for any length of time, and you consider the possibility of having to go back to square one, uh, everyone listening to this should do everything they possibly can to avoid that eventuality, because you just simply to recompound back to your current level could take years and years and years. It's just not worth it. The upside for margin loans is simply not worth the risk you'd otherwise be taking, at least in my mind. But Chris, you are dead right to ask the question. All right, our last one for this podcast, and then you can get back to uh, something else more important. And if you're still listening, thank you for hanging on, even though I'm here by myself. The last one is from Rick. Now, Rick also hit us up on Twitter, and again, at The Motley Fool AU. So he starts with, at The Motley Fool AU, great podcast, listen each week. Thank you, Rick, much appreciated. I think you've spoken about share buybacks before, but could you explain how and why companies can raise capital by making more shares and what rules they must abide by? Cheers and full on. Oh, good man, Rick. Full on, Rick. Look, the buybacks are, and, and frankly, issuing shares, they're two sides of the same coin. They're all parts of how you would effectively raise capital uh, to go and do things or, or effectively give back excess capital to change the, the kind of structure of your business. Now, let's start with buybacks. If you've got excess capital laying around, you've got extra cash in the bank account, you've thought about, it, well, what could I do? Well, I could use it to grow. I could try and do this marketing campaign, that research and development program. I can, I can improve that factory by spending a million dollars and getting better or faster or more higher quality machines. There are all the things I can do to make my business better. I can, I can grow sales and grow profits by doing some of those things, investing in the business to improve future profitability. 
Now, let's say you've either done all those things or the money you might invest, you just don't think it's got a high return potential. So we all have things we want to do with our money. If, if I could say, look, give me 100 bucks, I'll invest it at 1%. You'd say, well, no, thanks, Scott. So if your reinvestment idea in your own company can only give you 1%, you're going to say, well, what else could I do? And one of the things you can do is give some of that money back to shareholders. And in doing so, it's kind of like a, it's not it's not a dividend, so I don't want to confuse things, but it's effectively like an extra extra dividend. It's money you're giving back for your investment. If you own shares, you bought them for 10 bucks and they want to give you a dollar back in cash, well, that's an immediate 10% return. And so if you are a manager of a business and you can give your owners back an immediate 10% return, for example, it can be any number, but let's just go with that, then you probably should do that rather than investing at a lower rate. And so you do that by buying back the shares. What it effectively does is, let's, let's use my pizza example again, because it's easy. Let's say you've got four pieces of pizza and you want to buy back one of those pizzas. What you do is you basically uh, take that pizza back. You pay the person who's got it in there on their plate and you take it back. You say, I'll have that. Thanks very much. And you divide that amongst the other three pizza holders, if you like, if I don't torture the metaphor too badly. And they each end up with a slightly larger piece of the pizza. Now, in a company perspective, if you think about buying back, say, 10% of the shares, a company that earns $100 a year, if they buy back 10% of the shares, well, the remaining 90% of shareholders get to share that 10 bucks worth of profit amongst themselves, amongst a smaller group of shareholders. So every share, in theory, now owns a larger piece of that company, a larger proportion, and also that proportion is worth more because you're spreading the profit among fewer shareholders. So in that case, you're giving yourself the opportunity as a company and as a shareholder to earn even more without laying out any cash. The company's using its own money, or it's effectively your money, using its own money to buy back those shares to increase your proportional ownership of the company, which is a pretty good thing to do. Now, uh, plenty of businesses have done incredibly well doing exactly that. Um, Buffett himself has done very well with things like Wells Fargo and Amex when they bought back shares. His ownership interest has, in has increased and the company itself has increased profits. So you get this double whammy effect of a growing business and you get a larger share of that business on the way through. Instead of earning 10% of a business earning $10, all of a sudden now you own 20% of a business earning 15 bucks. And so you get a larger proportion of a larger dollar value. That's where share buybacks really, really help. Now let's turn to the other side of the story where he asks about raising capital by issuing or making more shares. Now in this case, what happens is companies can say, well, look, we've got this really great growth opportunity. I can, I can buy that factory over there and double my output. But I don't want to borrow money from the bank because that puts us under risk. The bank could call in the loan. that could send us to, to bankruptcy court. Uh, we might have a downturn in sales. And if that happens, we might be able to afford the interest on the loan. And so that's all a bit risky. What I can do instead is issue more shares. I can basically invite more shareholders to the party and say, look, I need to raise another million bucks to buy this factory. I don't want to borrow it from the bank, but I'll bring in some more shareholders. Now, in that case, more shares are issued and you own less of the company because there are more shares, the same assets of the business owned by more people. In other words, you own a slightly lower, in this case, maybe materially lower, but usually slightly lower proportion of shares, and they use that money to grow. It's safer because there's no ability for the bank to call it in. In fact, as shareholders, you can't call in your share of the of the company or you can do a sell it to somebody else. So there's no there's no kind of existential risk. There's no ability of the business to be taken bankrupt by taking out a loan. This, of course, otherwise you can go broke, but the loan being called in isn't something that will happen because there is no loan there. And instead, the company is saying, let's issue shares to fund that growth. That's particularly the case. Think about biotechs. Biotechs are a really dangerous part of the market, quite frankly, if you don't know what you're doing. Some of those companies have increased their share counts, so the number of shares on issue, by tenfold. In other words, if you own 1% of the company before, you now own 0.1% of the company. You've been massively diluted, to use the jargon, by them issuing more and more and more shares to raise more and more and more money with the hope of striking it rich with that one great biotech compound that's going to revolutionize the world. Now, if they do... 
even your lower shareholding is worth a whole lot more. So that's why they do it and why shareholders are happy in some cases for them to do it. Uh, but most of the time, uh, you want to be a little bit careful with companies issuing shares that they're buying something that's high quality, worth buying, and you think it's going to get a decent return. Otherwise, they are torching your money and theirs by issuing more and more and more shares. As I said, miners and biotechs are absolute monties at this sort of stuff. Generally speaking, it goes badly, but it's all in hope, in the, in the desperate, desperate hope that they'll finally strike it rich, either find some gold, quite literally strike it rich, or create that next new great breakthrough drug that's going to revolutionize the world and make millions of dollars for the company. Now, in terms of the rules, very quickly as we finish off, the rules are basically that if it's up to 10%, the companies can do it themselves without approval from shareholders. If it's over 10%, they must ask shareholders for approval if they're going to issue more shares. Buybacks generally don't need shareholder approval because it's a use of the company's cash like a dividend or something else. And usually, unless they're being flagrant with the money or putting the company at risk by giving back too much cash, it's a good thing and nobody complains about getting extra money from the company. That, that's why we use and why they tend to use uh, buybacks if the company has excess cash and they can't find anywhere else to use it. It's a pretty good sign that A, probably think things are going right, which is nice, uh, but also B, the growth um, opportunities are relatively limited. And that's something just to be a little bit mindful of is the more money they're giving back, the less opportunity they have to grow. And so generally speaking, it's not always the case, generally speaking, you should expect there are lesser opportunities for reinvestment and you're really running this business for cash, which again can be wonderful, uh, but you may not get the hyper growth that potentially otherwise you might be looking for. Get more Motley Fool money advice at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. All right, well, that's it. Thank you for bearing with me as we've gone through this special edition, this dockless edition, uh, this mailbag edition, and you listen to the number one business podcast in the country. So congratulations and thank you for making us number one again. That does wrap us up. But before we go, as I always say, don't forget to subscribe to the Triple M Motley Fool Money podcast through iTunes if you're on Apple. And I won't be too harsh today because Doc's not here and I feel a little bit guilty. Or your favorite Android podcast app. And if you like what we're doing, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes and tell your friends. We're sure they could do with a little foolish straight talk too. And don't forget, you can get your dose of foolishness straight to your inbox by going to fool.com.au forward slash triple M. That's it for this week's Motley Fool Money. We'll be back next week with another dose of foolish insight. Fool on. The Motley Fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned. General advice only. Please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation. Subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash triple M. The Motley Fool operates under financial services license 400691.